Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 20 In which Captain Dobbin acts as the messenger of Hyman. Without knowing how, Captain William Dobbin found himself the manager of the match between George Osborne and Amelia. Without him, it never would have taken place. He smiled rather bitterly as he thought that he, of all men in the world, should be the one to whom this task had fallen. But, though it was painful to him, Captain Dobbin was used to doing his duty without hesitation, and having made up his mind that Miss Sedley was in danger of dying of disappointment, he was determined to keep her alive. I will not enter into the details of the meeting between George and Amelia. A much harder heart than George's would have melted at the sight of that sweet face, so ravaged by despair. When her mother brought Osborne to her, she laid her head on her lover's shoulder, and there wept the most tender and refreshing tears. After crying over George's hand, she kissed it humbly, as if he were her supreme chief and master, and she quite unworthy. This sweet obedience touched and flattered George Osborne. He saw a slave before him in that simple, yielding, faithful creature, and thrilled secretly at the knowledge of his power. He would be a generous-minded sultan and make a queen of her. So he raised her up and forgave her, so to speak. All her dying hopes bloomed again. You would scarcely have recognized her beaming little face upon her pillow that night compared to the one that had laid there the night before. The honest Irish maidservant, delighted with the change, asked to kiss her and Amelia put her arms around the girl's neck and kissed her like a child. She was little more. She had a sweet, refreshing sleep, and what a spring of happiness as she woke in the morning sunshine. He will be here again today, she thought. He is the greatest and best of men. And George thought he was one of the generous creatures alive and was making a tremendous sacrifice in marrying her. While she and Osborne were meeting, old Mrs. Sedley and Captain Dobbin were talking downstairs about the future of the young people. Mrs. Sedley thought that nothing could induce Mr. Sedley to consent to the match between his daughter and the son of a man who had so shamefully treated him. And she told a long story about happier days, when Osborne lived in a very humble way, and his wife was glad to receive Joe's little baby things, which Mrs. Sedley passed on to her. The fiendish ingratitude of that man, she was sure, had broken Mr. S.'s heart, and as for a marriage, he would never consent. They must run away together, ma'am, 
Dobbin said, laughing, <laughs> like Captain Rawdon Crawley and Miss Emmy's friend, the governess. Was it possible? Well, she never. Mrs. Sedley was all excitement about this news. What an escape Joss had had. It was not, however, Mr. Sedley's wrath, which Dobbin feared so much, as that of George's father. He had considerable anxiety about the behavior of the black-browed old tyrant in Russell Square. He knew what a savage, determined man Osborne was, and how he stuck by his word. The only chance George has of reconcilement, thought Dobbin, is by distinguishing himself in the coming campaign. If he dies, they both go together. If he fails to distinguish himself, he has some money from his mother— or he must sell out and go to Canada, or rough it in a cottage in the country. With such a partner, Dobbin thought he would not mind Siberia. He thought, too, that the marriage should take place as quickly as possible. Was he anxious, I wonder, to have it over, as people, after a death, like to press forward the funeral? Dobbin urged George to marry before the regiment departed from England. If necessary, he would go himself and see both the fathers. With Mrs. Sedley's consent, Mr. Dobbin went to seek John Sedley in the city at the Tapioca Coffee House, where the poor, broken-down old gentleman used to go daily and write and receive letters tied up in mysterious bundles. I don't know anything more dismal than the bustle of a ruined man as he shows you letters from the wealthy, worn, greasy documents promising support on which he builds his hopes. Such a man takes you into the corner. He has his bundle of papers out and the favorite letters laid before you. And who does not know the sad, eager, half-crazy look which he fixes on you with his hopeless eyes? Dobbin found the once jovial and prosperous John Sedley changed into a man of this sort. His coat, that used to be so glossy, was white at the seams. His face had fallen in and was unshaved. His neckcloth hung limp under his sagging waistcoat. It was quite painful to see how humble and civil he was to the blear-eyed old waiter. As for William Dobbin, who had been the butt of the old man's humor on a thousand occasions, Sedley gave his hand to him in a very hesitating manner and called him Sir. A feeling of shame overcame Dobbin as the broken old man so received him, as if he himself had been somehow guilty of bringing Sedley low. "'I am very glad to see you, Captain Dobbin, sir.' he said. How is the worthy alderman and my lady your mother, sir? He looked round at the waiter as he said, my lady, as if to say, Harky, John, I have friends of rank still. My young friends, Dale and Spigot, do my business for me now, until my new offices are ready, for I'm only here temporarily, you know, Captain. And, well, what can I do for you, sir? Will you take anything?' Dobbin protested that he was not hungry or thirsty, and that he only came to ask if Mr. Sedley was well, and to shake hands with an old friend. He added, "'My mother is only waiting for the first fine day to go and call upon Mrs. Sedley.' "'Oh, my wife will be very happy to see her ladyship,' Sedley replied. 
pulling out his papers. I've a very kind letter here from your father, sir. Lady D. will find us, well, in rather a smaller house than we were accustomed to, but it, it's snug. <laughs> and the change of air does my daughter good. You, you remember my little Emmy, sir. She was suffering a good deal. The old gentleman's eyes were wandering as he fumbled at the worn red tape around his papers. "'You're a military man,' he went on. I, "'I ask you, could any man have predicted the return of that Corsican scoundrel from Elba? The Emperor of Austria was a damned traitor. I don't mince words.' Boney's escape from Elba was a damned plot, sir, in which half the powers of Europe were concerned to bring the funds down and to ruin this country. That's, that's, that's why I'm here, William, because I trusted the Emperor of Russia and the Prince Regent. Look, look at my papers. Look what the funds were on the 1st of March and what, what they're at now. There was collusion. "'or that villain never would have escaped. "'He ought to be brought to a court-martial and shot by Jove.' "'We're going to hunt Boney out, sir,' Dobbin said, "'rather alarmed at the old man's fury "'and the swelling veins on his forehead. "'The Duke's in Belgium already, "'and we expect marching orders every day. "'Oh, bring back the villain's head, sir. "'Shoot the coward down!' Sedley roared. I didn't list myself, but, uh, but I am a broken old man, ruined by that damned scoundrel, and by thieves in this country whom I made, sir. Dobbin was affected by the sight of this once kind old friend, almost crazed with misfortune and raving with senile anger. Yes, Sedley continued. "'There are beggars that you put on horseback, William Dobbin, "'and they're the first to ride you down. "'I mean a purse-proud villain in Russell Square, "'whom I knew without a shilling, "'and whom I hope to see a beggar as he was when I defriended him. "'I have heard something of this, sir, from my friend George,' Dobbin said, "'anxious to come to his point.' "'The quarrel between you and his father has cut him up a great deal, sir. "'Indeed, I have a message from him.' "'Oh, oh, oh that's your errand, is it?' cried the old man, jumping up. "'What? He condoles with me, does he? "'Very kind of him. "'The prig with his West End swagger. "'He's still hankering about my house, is he? "'He's as big a villain as his father. "'I Curse the day that ever I let him into my house, and I'd rather see my daughter dead than marry to him. His father's harshness is not George's fault, sir. Your, your daughter's love for him is as much your doing as his. Who are you to play with two young people's affections and break their hearts at your will? I forbid the match, old Sedley cried. That family and mine are separated for ever. I've, I've fallen low, but not so low as that. You have not the power or the right to separate those two, Dobbin answered in a low voice, and if you don't give your daughter your consent, it will be her duty to marry without it. To my thinking, she is just as much married as if the bands had been read in all the churches in London.' 
And what better answer can there be to Osborne's charges against you than that his son claims to enter your family and marry your daughter? A light of something like satisfaction seemed to break over old Sedley as this point was put. But he still persisted that the marriage between Amelia and George should never take place with his consent. We must do it without, Dobbin said, smiling, and told Mr. Sedley the story of Rebecca's elopement with Captain Crawley. It amused the old gentleman. <laughs> You're terrible fellows, you captains, said he, tying up his papers, and his face wore something like a smile. Perhaps the idea of hitting his enemy Osborne such a blow soothed the old gentleman, and he and Dobbin parted good friends. My sister says she has diamonds as big as pigeons' eggs, George said, laughing. How they must set off her complexion. Her jet-black hair is as curly as Samuel's. George, talking with Amelia, was describing a young lady, a West Indian heiress whom his sisters had lately met, and who was an object of vast respect to the Russell Square family. She was reported to have numerous plantations in the West Indies, a deal of money, a mansion in Surrey, and a house in Portland Place. Mrs. Haggistoon chaperoned her and kept her house. She had just left school, and George and his sisters had met her at an evening party where she had received them with great good humor. An orphan, with her money, so interesting, the Mrs. Osborne said. They drove in their carriage to see their new friend the very next day. Mrs. Haggistoon struck at the girls as rather haughty, but Rhoda was the frankest, kindest, most agreeable creature, they said, wanting a little polish, but so good-natured. You should have seen her court dress, Emmy, Osborne cried, laughing. She came to my sister's to show it off. Her diamonds blazed out like Vauxhall on the night we were there. Do you remember Vauxhall, Emmy, and Joss singing to his dearest diddle-diddle-darling? <laughs> oh, diamonds and mahogany, my dear, and the white feathers in her hair. She had earrings like chandeliers and a yellow satin train that streamed after her like the tail of a cornet. How old is she? asked Emmy. "'Why, uh, the black princess must be two or three and twenty, though she has only just left school, and you should see her handwriting. "'Why, surely it must be Miss Swartz, the parlor boarder,' Emmy said, remembering that good-natured mulatto girl who had been so affected when Amelia left Miss Pinkerton's academy. "'The very name,' George said. Her father was a slave owner who died last year, and Miss Pinkerton has finished her education. She can play two pieces on the piano. She knows three songs. She can write when Mrs. Haggistoon is there to spell for her, and Jane and Mariah already love her as a sister. <laughs> I wish they had loved me, said Emmy wistfully. They were always very cold to me. Oh, my dear child, they would have loved you if you had had two hundred thousand pounds, George replied. That is the way they have been brought up. We live among bankers and city bigwigs who are always jingling their guineas in their pockets, like that jackass Fred Bullock who is going to marry Maria. Curse the whole money-grubbing pack of them. I fall asleep at their great heavy dinners.'
dear little woman, you are the only person of our set who ever looked or spoke like a lady. Don't remonstrate. You are the only lady. Didn't Miss Crawley remark it? Who has lived in the best company in Europe? And as for Crawley, of the lifeguards, <laughs> hang it, he's a fine fellow, and I like him for marrying the girl he had chosen. Amelia admired Mr. Crawley, too, for this, and trusted Rebecca would be happy, and hoped Joss would be consoled. And so the pair went on prattling, as in early days. Amelia's confidence was perfectly restored, though she professed to be dreadfully frightened, lest George should forget her for the heiress Miss Swartz and her estates in St. Kitts. But the fact is, she was a great deal too happy to have any doubts, and with George at her side again was not afraid of any heiress, or indeed of any sort of danger. When Captain Dobbin came back to them in the afternoon, it did his heart good to see how Amelia had grown young again, how she laughed and sang at the piano. Beyond the first smile of recognition, and even that was an hypocrisy, for she thought his arrival rather provoking, Miss Sedley did not once notice Dobbin during his visit, but he was content to see her happy and thankful to have been the means of making her so. Chapter 21 A Quarrel About an Heiress Old Mr. Osborne had a great ambition and encouraged his daughter's friendship with Miss Swartz enthusiastically. "'You won't find that splendor to which you are accustomed,' he would say to Miss Rhoda Swartz, at our humble mansion in Russell Square. My daughters are plain disinterested girls, but their hearts are in the right place, and their affection for you does them honour. I'm a plain, humble British merchant, but you'll find us a united, simple, happy, and, I think I may say, respected family.' A plain table, a plain people, but a warm welcome, my dear Miss Rhoda. A glass of champagne, Hicks. Champagne for Miss Swartz. There is little doubt that old Osborne believed all he said, and that the girls were quite earnest in protesting their love for Miss Swartz. People in Vanity Fair fasten onto rich folks quite naturally. Their affections rush out to meet and welcome money. The Osborne family, who had not in fifteen years been able to get up a regard for Amelia Sedley, became as fond of Miss Swartz during a single evening as the most romantic reader could desire. What a match for George she'd be, the sisters and Miss Word agreed, and how much better than that insignificant little Amelia. He would make her such a dashing husband, visions of balls in Portland Place, presentations at court, and introductions to half the peerage filled the minds of the young ladies. Old Osborne thought she would be a great match for his son. He should leave the army. He should go into Parliament. With honest British exultation, he saw the name of Osborne ennobled in his son's person, and thought that he might be the first of a glorious line of baronets. Through working in the city, he knew everything about the heiress's fortune and where her estates lay. Young Fred Bullock, one of his informants, would have liked to make a bid for her himself, 
Only he was booked to Mariah Osborne. But not being able to secure her as a wife, Fred quite approved of her as a sister-in-law. Let George cut in directly and win her, was his advice. Strike while the iron's hot, you know, while she's fresh to the town. In a few weeks, some fellows from the West End will come in with a title and cut out us city folk. The sooner the better, Mr. Osborne, Mr. Bullock said, though later he remembered Amelia and how pretty she was and how attached to George Osborne, and he gave up at least ten seconds of his valuable time to regretting her misfortune. So, while George Osborne's good feelings and his good friend Dobbin were carrying back the truant to Amelia, his father and sisters were arranging this splendid match for him, which they never dreamed he would resist. When the elder Osborne gave what he called a hint, there was no possibility of mistaking his meaning. He called kicking a footman downstairs a hint to leave his service. With his usual frankness and delicacy, he told Mrs. Haggistoon that he would give her five thousand pounds on the day his son was married to her ward, and considered that proposal a great piece of diplomacy. He gave George another hint about the heiress, and ordered him to marry her, as he would have ordered his butler to draw a cork, or his clerk to write a letter. This order disturbed George a good deal. He was in his second courtship of Amelia, which was inexpressibly sweet to him. The contrast of her manners and appearance with those of the heiress made the idea of a union with the latter appear ludicrous. When his father first gave him the hint about Miss Swartz, George put him off. "'You should have thought of the matter sooner, sir,' he said. "'It can't be done now when we are expecting every day to go on foreign service. Wait till my return.' if I do return. He argued that the time for marriage was when he came home with his promotion. For I promise you, sir, he said with a satisfied air, that one way or other you shall read the name of George Osborne in the Gazette. The father replied that the West End chaps would catch the heiress if any delay took place, that if he didn't marry Miss S., he might at least have an engagement in writing, and that a man who could get ten thousand a year by staying at home was a fool to risk his life abroad. So you would have me shown up as a coward, sir, and I'll name dishonored for the sake of Miss Swartz's money? George interposed. This remark staggered the old gentleman, but his mind was made up. He said, "'You will dine here tomorrow, sir, and every day Miss Swartz comes. You will be here to pay your respects to her. If you need money, call upon Mr. Chopper.' Thus a new obstacle was in George's way, but it only made him the more resolute. Miss Swartz herself was quite ignorant of all these plans for her, which, strange to say, her chaperone did not divulge. She took the Mrs. Osborne's flattery for genuine feeling, and being of a very warm and impetuous nature, responded to their affection ardently. And I dare say that she thought George Osborne a very nice young man. His whiskers had made an impression upon her on the first night she beheld them at the ball. George had an air at once swaggering and melancholy, languid and fierce. He looked like a man with passions 
secrets and private harrowing griefs and adventures. His voice was rich and deep. He would say it was a warm evening with a tone as sad and confidential as a declaration of love. He trampled over all the young bucks of his father's circle. A few sneered at him. Some, like Dobbin, fanatically admired him. And his whiskers had begun to curl themselves round the affections of Miss Swartz. Whenever there was a chance of meeting him, that good-natured young woman was quite in a flurry to see her dear Mrs. Osborne. She went to great expense in new gowns, bracelets, bonnets, and feathers, adorning herself with her utmost skill to please him. The girls would ask her for a little music, and she would sing her three songs and play her two pieces, while Miss Wirt and the chaperone sat by. The day after George had his hint from his father, he was lolling upon a sofa before dinner in a very becoming attitude of melancholy. He had been, at his father's request, to Mr. Chopper in the city. He had then passed three hours with his dear little Amelia at Fulham, and he came home to find his sisters in starched muslin in the drawing-room, the dowagers cackling in the background, and honest swarts in her favorite amber-colored satin, with turquoise bracelets, countless rings, flowers and feathers, about as elegantly decorated as a chimney sweep on May Day. The girls talked about fashions until he was perfectly sick of their chatter. He contrasted their behavior with little Emmy's, their shrill voices with her tender tones, their attitudes and starch with her soft movements and modest graces. Poor Swartz was seated where Emma used to sit. Her bejeweled hands lay sprawling in her amber satin lap. Her earrings twinkled and her big eyes sparkled. She was doing nothing with perfect contentment and thinking herself charming. Damn, George said to a confidential friend, she looked like a china doll, which has nothing to do all day but to grin and wag its head. It was all I could do to prevent myself from throwing the sofa cushion at her. He restrained himself, however. The sisters began to play the Battle of Prague at the piano. Stop that damn thing! George howled from the sofa. It makes me mad! You, well, you play us something, Miss Swartz. Sing anything but the Battle of Prague. Oh, shall I sing Blue-Eyed Mary, or the air from the cabinet? Miss Swartz asked. Oh, that sweet thing from the cabinet, the sister said. We've had that, replied George. I can sing Flavie de Tougie, Miss Swartz said meekly, if I had the words. It was the last of her collection. Oh, Fleuve de Targe, Miss Maria cried. We have the song, and she went off to fetch the book it was in. Now, it happened that this song had been given to the young ladies by a friend of theirs, whose name was on the title page, and Miss Swartz saw Amelia Sedley written in the corner. "'Oh, Lord!' cried Miss Swartz, spinning swiftly round on the music-stool. "'Is it my Amelia? Amelia, that was at Miss Pease? Oh, tell me about her. Where is she?' "'Don't mention her.' Miss Maria Osborne said hastily. Her family has disgraced itself. Her father cheated Papa, and as for her, she is never to be mentioned here. 
This was Miss Maria's return for George's rudeness about the Battle of Prague. "'Are you a friend of Amelia's?' George said, bouncing up. "'Oh, God bless you for it, Miss Swartz. Don't believe what the girls say. She is not to blame. At any rate, she's the best.' "'You know you're not to speak about her, George,' cried Jane. "'Papa forbids it.' Well, "'Who's to prevent me?' George cried. "'I say she's the best, the kindest, gentlest, sweetest girl in England. And that bankrupt or no, my sisters are not fit to hold candles to her. Oh, do go and see her, Miss Swartz. She needs friends now, and I say, God bless everybody who befriends her. Anybody who speaks kindly of her is my friend. Thank you, Miss Swartz.' And he went up and wrung her hand. Oh, "'George! George!' The sisters cried. I say, George said fiercely, I thank everybody who loves Amelia, said... He stopped. Old Osborne was in the room with a face livid with rage and eyes like hot coals. Though George had stopped, yet his blood was up. He was not to be cowed. Rallying instantly, he replied to the bullying frown of his father with a look so resolute and defiant that the elder man quailed and turned away. "'Mrs. Hagerstone, let me take you down to dinner,' he said. "'Give your arm to Miss Swartz, George.' And they marched. "'Miss Swartz, I love Amelia, and we've been engaged almost all our lives.' Osborne said to his partner, and during the dinner he rattled on with the volubility which made his father nervous about the fight which was to take place once the ladies were gone. The difference between the pair was that while the father was a violent bully, the son had three times his courage. He could not merely make an attack, but resist it, and he took his dinner with perfect coolness. Old Osborne, on the contrary, was nervous and drank much. He floundered in his conversation with the ladies, George's coolness only making him more angry. It made him half mad to see the calm way in which George, with a swaggering bow, opened the door for the ladies to leave the room, and filling himself a glass of wine, looked his father full in the face as if to say, "'Fire first. The old man also took a supply of ammunition, but his decanter clinked against the glass as he tried to fill it. With a purple, choking face, he then began, "'How dare you, sir, mention that person's name before Miss Swartz in my drawing-room? How dare you do it?' "'Stop, sir,' says George. "'Don't say dare, sir. Dare isn't a word to be used to a captain in the British Army.' "'I shall say what I like to my son, sir. "'I can cut him off with a shilling if I like. "'I can make him a beggar if I like,' the elder said. "'I'm a gentleman, though I am your son, sir,' George answered haughtily. "'Any communications which you have to make to me, "'or any orders which you may please to give, "'I beg may be couched in that kind of language "'which I am accustomed to hear.' Whenever the lad assumed his haughty manner, it always created either great awe or great irritation in the parent. Old Osborne stood in secret terror of his son as a better gentleman than himself, and in Vanity Fair there is no character which a low-minded man so much mistrusts 
as that of a gentleman. My father didn't give me the education you have had, nor your advantages or money. If I had kept the company some folks have had through my means, perhaps my son wouldn't have any reason to brag, sir, of his superiority. But it wasn't considered gentlemanly in my time for a man to insult his father. If I'd done any such thing, mine would have kicked me downstairs, sir. I never insulted you, sir. I said I begged you to remember your son was a gentleman as well as yourself. I know very well that you give me plenty of money, said George. You tell me often enough, sir. There's no fear of my forgetting it. I wish you'd remember other things as well, sir, his father answered. I wish you'd remember that in this house, so long as you choose to... Honor it with your company. I'm the master. And that name, that, that you, that, that what, sir? George asked, filling another glass of claret. <clears throat> Burst out his father with a screaming oath. That the name of those Sedleys never be mentioned here, sir. Not one of the whole damned lot of them. It wasn't I, sir, that introduced Miss Sedley's name. It was my sisters who spoke ill of her to Miss Swartz, and by Jove, I'll defend her wherever I go. Nobody shall speak lightly of her in my presence. Our family has done her quite enough injury already, I think, and may stop reviling her. I'll shoot any man but you who says a word against her. Go on, sir. Go on, the old gentleman said, his eyes starting out of his head. Go on about what, sir? About the way in which we've treated that angel of a girl? Who told me to love her? It was you. I might have chosen elsewhere and looked higher, but I obeyed you. And now that her heart's mine, you give me orders to fling it away and punish her, kill her, perhaps, for other people's faults? <sighs> it's a shame, by heavens said George, working himself up into a passion to play fast and loose with a young girl's affections, and with such an angel as that, so superior, so good and gentleman. If I desert her, sir, do you suppose she forgets me? I ain't going to have any of this damn sentimental nonsense and humbug here, sir. There shall be no beggar marriages in my family. If you choose to fling away the chance of eight thousand a year, you may do it. But you will walk out of this house, sir. Will you do as I tell you, or will you not? Marry that mulatto woman, George said. No, no, I will not. Mr. Osborne pulled frantically at the bell cord, and almost black in the face ordered the butler to call a coach for Captain Osborne. I've done it, said George coming into the slaughter's coffee-house an hour afterwards, looking very pale. "'What, my boy?' said Dobbin. George told what had passed between his father and himself. "'I'll marry her tomorrow,' he said with an oath. "'I love her more every day, Dobbin.'" Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads, 
Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.